Hey guys, welcome to State of the Nation. David, we are at episode number 32. How are you doing today, David? Absolutely fantastic. So much is happening. Every single week, it seems like it's just a new week of even more stuff. And last week was no exception. And it looks like this week, it's going to be even more crazy. David, we just had the Winklevoss twins on and we're about to get to that conversation with them. They were on CNBC last week. I had to actually uh, get a free trial of CNBC to see that full interview, but it was straight fire. They were dropping crypto truth bombs on the CNBC reporters, and I'm not sure if they knew what to make of them. This is going to be like the, this is kind of the crypto native sequel to that interview. And we're talking about, of course, GameStop and everything mm-hmm. that happened as a result of the GameStop news and the price action. Yeah, GameStop is of course one part story about a fine. It's a financial story, but it really it's much more than that. It's a, it's a cultural story as well. It's a populist story. There's a stories there. There's topics of censorship and deplatforming to be had. The legacy markets are showing to be disenfranchising to people, uh, the people, the masses. Whereas you know, DeFi and crypto is supposed to be this inside out, every equal playing fields platform. And I think people are coming to terms with that. And and I think what I see. Cameron and Tyler trying to do is trying to promote that. We see Elon Musk coming to and adding Bitcoin into his bio. Everyone is, you know, rumoring about what is Elon Musk up to. Uh, there's really so many different stories to be told here. So we got the Winklevi on to help us tell those stories because, you know, they have one foot in the legacy world and one foot in crypto. And they do a, both a great job just being on platforms like CNBC and then also like Bankless. Yeah, absolutely. And a quick disclaimer, Gemini is a sponsor of the show. And of course, the Winklevoss twins co-founded Gemini. That is not the reason we had them on the show. We brought them on the show because they are dropping straight fire about this GameStop issue. If this is your first day of the nation, we do it every Tuesday. Generally, it is streamed live at about two o'clock Eastern on Tuesdays. It comes out on the podcast the next day. We've got some other things going on in the Bankless Nation as well. A Jeremy Allaire podcast. He, of course, is the uh, founder of Circle, and they are behind the USDC stablecoin. Really interesting conversation there. And then we had Brian... uh, And then we had Brent Johnson talk about the crypto milkshake theory, the dollar milkshake theory, rather. And then we ask his thoughts on crypto. That's coming out next week. So lots of hot content in store for you. But David, we want to get to the interview fast today. But before we do, I want to ask you the question I always ask you at the front of these episodes. What is the state of the nation this week, my friend? The state of the nation is assembling. We are assembling. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So here, here's how I got this to this one. We have, uh, first off, the Wall Street Bets subreddit, w- which is like the focal point of this entire story, grew by like, you know, 6x or 10x or something its size. Like p- people just flocked into that into that uh, subreddit. Then then we have, you know, plenty of people talking about how this this is a bull case for specifically Ethereum, specifically DeFi. We have Soldier Boy coming in and minting NFTs. We have Elon talking even more about Bitcoin, talking, putting Bitcoin into his body. It really seems to be that this very wide, diverse set parts of the world are all coming together to like kind of focus in on crypto. I don't think the Wall Street Bets uh, subreddit really is kind of privy to the crypto conversation so early. They're still focused on shorting or or buying GME to the moon. But I think once all the dust settles, people are going to really understand that like 
the reason why there's censorship, the reason why there's, you know, discrepancies between how retail and hedge funds are treated as financial players and markets is because that these markets are inherently unfair and unbiased. And the only way to get at, get out and from under the, the influence and oppression of these poorly structured markets is through DeFi. And I think that these people are all assembling under this DeFi banner. Well, assembling is an interesting word. It reminds me of like that scene at the end of the end game where it's like Thanos and then it starts with just like Captain America. And then suddenly the, the other Marvel superheroes beam in, you see Black Panther and Spider-Man and all of the rest. And it's like the established uh, traditional financial system is kind of like Thanos. And it's this diverse group from uh, Reddit online communities to, to retail, to even politicians are joining the fray against kind of what's going on in the traditional financial system and the perceived unfairness that is happening. So David, that is definitely the topic for today's State of the Nation. And we're going to get right into that with Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss in just a minute. But before we do, we want to tell you about our fantastic sponsors who made this episode possible. Synthetics is Ethereum's decentralized derivatives liquidity protocol. What does that mean? Synthetics is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets, which are assets that are priced via an oracle rather than bids or asks. Traders can use the Quenta exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetics. Traders on Quenta can trade synthetic tokens like SBTC, SOIL, or SDFI. Because Quenta is powered by synthetics, traders experience zero slippage on their trades. No, I didn't mean low slippage, I meant no slippage, because that is the power of the synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths, which are synthetic assets that move inversely to their target asset. Synthetics isn't just for traders, developers can build on synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets, or investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. If you're a developer or you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to www.synthetics.io where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from synthetics. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got back into crypto back in 2017, and it has been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens like Wi-Fi, Aave, Uni, and also they are one of the few exchanges that has liquid DAI markets. Having both the option of logging into the Gemini.com website or instead opening the Gemini mobile app has allowed me to be able to access any and all exchange and on or off ramp services that I've needed to on a moment's notice. With instant deposits and fast withdrawals, I'm able to make my money do the things I want it to when I want it to. You can buy crypto safely and securely on Gemini with the peace of mind of knowing that your investments are insured and protected with industry leading cybersecurity. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 bonus. Check them out, gemini.com slash go bankless. 
All right, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation. We have Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss here. They are the founders of the Gemini Exchange. You know them as crypto advocates. They are crypto visionaries for sure. They were also involved in one of those social network projects back in the day, but that is way less important than what we're talking about today, which is crypto. Cameron, Tyler, welcome back to Bankless, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah. Well, the timing is, uh, I think, particularly appropriate because I feel like the conversation that we're about to have has just hit Main Street in a way that it never has. I just watched the interview that you guys did with with CNBC uh, last week. It was like I, I had to sign up for the free trial because they paywalled it. I'm going to have to cancel that later. But I was laughing the entire time because you guys were just spitting fire. I don't think that the interviewers knew exactly what to do with it as you were pushing back against this establishment narrative. And they kept focusing on the GameStop uh, stock itself, the GameStop uh, stock itself. But is this more than about GameStop share price? What is this whole thing really about? Yeah, I think it's so much more than just a stock. I really think it's ultimately about censorship and uh, people controlling people, right? The establishment kind of controlling. And I think this is kind of where um, one of the interviewers kind of uh, got very defensive when I sort of, when I suggested that like, A, people have been told like, you can't go outside, you can't go run your small business. And now they're being told you can't trade. Um, and, you know, I think people are just being tired of being told like, you know, you have permission to do this, you don't have permission to do that. And the power is, is held by a very few hands, whether it's a very few governors, whether it's uh, the Robin Hood trading app and the few people, the big customers like a Citadel leaning on them, um, people are sort of tired of being told what to do. Um, and I think it's a huge catalyst and eye opener for um, DeFi, Ethereum, Bitcoin, because uh, they are permissionless and no one can make a phone call. No one can lean on the CEO of Ethereum or Bitcoin because there's no such thing. Um, so it is open, it's permissionless, it's credibly neutral. Um, so all of these things that we keep seeing happening, um, uh, you know, are, are not are not like the deplatforming um, and stuff can't happen there. So I think people are just um, they're exhausted, they're tired, they're fed up, they're they're fighting back. Um, and I think it's a great catalyst for um, you know DeFi, Ethereum, and, and ultimately crypto. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, at, at its core, it's it's much bigger than a stock or a ticker. Um, it's really a protest, um, and it's a lot of individual traders who historically have been sort of derided and spoken down to, whether it's unsophisticated or quote retail um, or day traders or hobbyists or what have you. And quite frankly, the, the irony of this particular situation is that they're the ones that played the better poker hand. Um, they saw this potential gamma squeeze sitting out there in plain sight. It was an airtight theory. Um, Melvin Capital, the hedge fund that got run over and lost something like 53% in the month of January, the majority of which was result, a result of the game time um, gamma squeeze, was asleep at the wheel and or didn't sort of probabilistically take into account 
the chance that a lot of individuals on a, a Reddit, a subreddit board would coordinate um, a gamma squeeze, but it was sort of sitting out there in plain sight and very clear what was going to happen with a smaller cap stock that was heavily shorted. And to be clear, it's not like Melvin Capital was um, short selling or hedging a position. The the I think that GameStop was something like a 50% more short than outstanding float of shares. So this was a really predatory type trade that was the, the, the only goal was to completely drive GameStop into the ground. It wasn't to sort of hedge risk. It was to just decimate this company that's already sort of a sitting duck in the middle of a pandemic, probably hasn't been able to operate many of their stores for, for months or the foot traffic has been very limited. I think they employ something like 15,000 people. So this was, this was a direct um, attack to, to, to pile drive a company. And Wall Street Bets crowd saw that behavior and took the other side and, and won. And, and that's, you know, that's obviously the battleground, but it's way more than that. And I think to Tyler's, you know, earlier, earlier comments, this is about um, people saying, look, we're fed up and tired of needing permission to move our money, to spend our money, to use our money. And that's really the ethos of sort of DeFi and permissionless finance um, at its core. And I think, um, you know, there is a modern money monopoly and it's been in place for for a hundred plus years. And I think that's what's so fascinating about DeFi is, is the permissionless nature. And so as we sort of saw this, this playing out, I think it is um, a huge sort of advertisement for DeFi. And when we first got into Bitcoin in 2012, I remember the Cyprus bail-in in 2013. And it was this moment where basically the banks in Cyprus became insolvent. And instead of doing a bailout, they did a bail-in where they took a haircut of any depositor um, who had above 100,000 euros, you just lost all of your money. So let's say you had a million euros, 900,000 of your euros just got taken uh, by the government called a bail-in. And that was um, a huge catalyst that sort of, uh, I don't think many people saw, but Bitcoin had its uh, a, a really big bull run or run at that point because people uh, saw firsthand what was possible and, and realized that um, their money isn't safe. And I think the last, you know, the, in, in the US executive order, uh, the, I forget what number it is that uh, FDR did in the, in the 30s that basically confiscated, uh, you know, gold holdings among citizens. The problem is that we have um, amnesia and people sort of forget. Um, you go to Wikipedia, you can dig these things up. And if you look at like the Bitcoin subreddit, it, it sort of floats around, but nobody, you know, really remembers that or was around back then. Um, so it takes these, these moments like the GameStop moment, the Robin Hood, um, where they, they literally shut off one side of the market. I mean, if that's not manipulation, I don't know what it is. And, and the, the um, excuse that, hey, we needed to post more collateral at our clearinghouse, fine, then just do fully capitalized trades or fully funded, you know, shut off the margin piece or shut off both sides. Imagine, you know, in the Super Bowl, um, which is going to happen, I think, in a week or so, um, 
if for one quarter, uh, you know, one team said, hey, you can only play defense, you can't score. All you can do is prevent, you know, Tom Brady from scoring over the next quarter. That's what happened on Friday. And, and people are just outraged by that. Um, and I think that there needs to be a lot more answers, but, but really the answer is DeFi. At the end of the day, you can go in and try and re-architect the existing system, work with that establishment, work with the suits, or you can say, wait a second, we can just build all of this in a better way, permissionless over in DeFi. Let's get to work. Well said. The, the, these are all topics we're going to dive into during, during our time with you guys. We're going to definitely talk about the systemic risk, definitely talk about whether this is DeFi's moment in mainstream and how DeFi can solve these problems. You know, maybe the first thing to touch on, though, I was very struck in the CNBC interview uh, that the establishment really doesn't understand this Wall Street bets online community. They just dismiss them as amateurs, as greedy speculators. Uh, they said barbarians. They, They've been called barbarians before. <laughs> so this is day trading barbarians. And and there's almost like this patronizing aspect when you keep here repeated on mainstream finance media. This will all end in tears, right? As, yeah. Like as as if and it, it, it has for Melvin Capital. <laughs> well, okay. So like, what what doesn't mainstream media and the establishment finance uh, understand about these Wall Street bet style online communities? So, look, I think you're absolutely right. We've been gaslit by the establishment and the centralized media complex. The way that they describe these um, investors, as you as you said as amateurs, rookies, but they're the ones who actually acted like the pros and Melvin's the guys who acted like the amateur rookies, right? They didn't understand the gamma squeeze as much as these, these rookie guys. Also look at the rhetoric um, of how they describe the behavior of the investing. It's very pejorative. They attacked the stock, they raided this company. When they talk about hedge funds actually attacking stocks, in rating companies, they use euphemisms like going short, betting against. So we're so, we've been so conditioned to think the opposite of what was actually true. Um, so I think that's a huge problem and we all fall victim to it. We've all been like indoctrinated, but like it's actually opposite day. What they're saying about the Wall Street's bets crowd is actually what they should be saying about the 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 hedge fund crowd and vice versa the other thing is that like when you look at the way the system's set up um in terms of like financial sophistication the proxies that the sec rules use uh price out the little guy and we know um from our experiences in crypto that money is not a great indication of sophistication i guarantee you the wall street bets crowd understands cryptography, hash functions, how to assess um, an investment in crypto a thousand times better than the folks at Melvin Capital or Citrone Research or Point72. I, I, would I wouldn't be surprised if they don't even know how to work a computer in those hedge funds, right? They're like just not tech shops. And the Wall Street Bets crowd are probably like e-gamers, super fluent with computers um, their whole lives and engineer and kind of coders. And so like you'd want to, you, if you wanted to like bet behind someone in crypto or, or whatever, you would do them. Yet because of the rules, they're priced out of all of these great opportunities. 
So retail never gets to look at Uber um, or Facebook as it's private because you have to be accredited to get into the funds that get into these companies. So by the time they get it, it's dumped onto them um, after the IPO. So the whole system is, I mean, that's just one example of the little guy like demographically getting priced out because they're not sophisticated because of the size of their, their wallet. And, and they never have the opportunity to increase the size of their wallet because they can't, they don't have the permission to invest. So it perpetuates the little guy staying the little guy and the big guys getting all the opportunities first. So it's total bullshit and people are waking up to it. And as soon as the little guy starts winning, um, they change the goalpost or they call timeout. We need a break, you know, rain delay or something. Um, I've never seen uh, a hedge fund stopped in the middle of making too much money. Oh, that hedge fund's just running away with it. Like George Soros is making too much money breaking the pound. Let's stop him. Um, let's deplatform them from a Bloomberg terminal. You know, like they deplatform the Wall Street Bets community from, um, from Reddit, from Discord, you know, because of they weaponized the community guidelines. You know, they took some screenshots or something and said, oh, this is, you know, whatever. Um, I don't see any of the way we've been, the, the, the Wall Street Bets community has been treated. I've never seen that ever happen to an institution, um, a hedge fund, or any any suit. And I think that is what's so outrageous. And we still don't know what happened. No one's satisfied with the answer. I've asked like all the people I can think of to ask, people in crypto, people in capital markets, um, people who just should know and nobody knows and how, and like it's a week later. So, um, you know, anyway, um, yeah. Yeah, and I would just add, um, by the way, I don't think they got deplatformed from Reddit. Um, I think that might have been uh, the channel went private, but but Discord definitely pulled the plug or the cord, if you will, uh, pun intended. <laughs> and um, I'm sure there's a lot of other folks trying to figure out how to how to unplug these guys as well. I also kind of um, the paternalistic sort of uh, terminology, like we're, we're, we're settling this to protect like the um, traders and things like that. And, and you see a lot of the talking heads, they get up and they're like, well, there's gonna be tears at the end of this and bag holders. And, and who's to say that, you know, the Wall Street bets folks aren't sending a message and are fine parting ways with their capital and incinerating it in the process. Um, I know that I've personally given to a lot of GoFundMe pages to help support restaurants and businesses during the pandemic. I don't expect to see that money again. Um, and, and it was a donation, right? And I'm just trying to support. So who's to say these folks aren't, who actually walk into GameStop and our customers aren't trying to support a business um, so that a predatory capital like doesn't try and drive it into the ground um, and create a self-fulfilling prophecy. How do we know that they're totally, we don't know that, you know, we're making an assumption that they aren't totally fine, um, you know, just supporting. Um, right. So it, it, it could be their version of a GoFundMe page for GameStop. And like I was saying earlier, um, Many of them might even be employees of GameStop that have been furloughed during the pandemic because GameStop can't open as a business and it's a sitting duck. And then, so they're trying, they're sitting at home, they're trying to trade, you know, and save the company maybe they work for or patronize and actually shop at. And they're told you can't do that. 
So it's like, how do you, how do you win? You know? And I think that is like the fever pitch. That's the outrage. And the public support is so unanimously in favor of Wall Street bets, except for if, except for over at CNBC. And the only reason that is because they, they lionize and idolize the, in the celebrification of, um, if that's even a word, <laughs> of these hedge fund managers because the hedge funds pay their advertising. The hedge funds butter their bread. Um, and that's why, you know, when they invite them on, they, they're like talking up to them. They're looking up to them and they're, they're celebrating them despite the fact that they've never innovated in their life. They never created anything. Uh, and these are the same folks that almost killed Tesla, right? They almost like put the nail in the coffin for Elon Musk, the greatest entrepreneur of our generation. He's trying to save our planet with sustainable energy. He's trying to get humanity to Mars. And these folks almost got him. They, they are parasites. They, they, do, they provide very, very little service. It's highly questionable. Um, you know, the fact that you could short, um, you know, more than the float, more than there are shares of a company is completely toxic, completely mm -hmm. destructive. Um, and the only reason at CNBC that they support it is because these folks pay their bills. They, you know, and, and that's the issue. And that's, I think, what you saw when that, when John Fort, the, the interviewer, went off the rails. Um, you know, he was getting so defensive because uh, I was striking a nerve, you know, like it's sort well, of like- Tyler, uh, he was, he, he used this term. He said that uh, you were like almost fomenting populism. <laughs> Is that fomenting populism, what you're saying here? I I think everything, I, I think was a fact. I mean, if facts are populism, then, then I guess so. But, um, you know, populism, it again, more, it's, it's like, it, it, it feels- Outrage. Feels, sorry, I was going to say like, but that alone feels like um, uh, talking down to people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, oh, you're the little guy, you're the individuals, you don't know any better. Let us tell you how to think. Let us tell you how to uh, think about a stock and invest your money. Let me tell you what's good with good for you. And people are tired of that, you know, and nobody does this better than Hollywood celebrities. They talk down to people. They tell them how they should think, what they should believe in. Um, and that's why I love when Ricky Gervais hosts the Globes because he just calls him out on it. He's just like, <laughs> all right, like take your award, thank your God, thank your agent and fuck off. Like that was one of his jokes. And it's like, it's so true. Everybody's sitting at home like, yes, like, okay, stop talking down to us. Um, and that's why... Um, you know, the UFC ratings, um, you know, when Meryl Streep gets up there and it's sort of like, you know, it's called the arts. It's not called martial arts. UFC has like 10 times more ratings than the Golden Globes or the Oscars because of the the arrogance and sort of the hubris. And people are just tired of it, you know? I think it's a worthy conversation to talk about how much this became about something else other than the money and it immediately became about a message or a movement more than it was about, you know, some Wall Street bettors, uh, you know, making a bunch of money, right? The, the, I've been following the Wall Street Bets Forum this weekend and 
there's so many like memes and just like, you know, cultural tidbits that came out of that community that was all about, you know, uh, of, of course, like talking about like not selling in diamond hands um, and diamond hands is, a, is like a meme that they've generated for people that don't sell the stock because if people don't sell the stock, then Melvin Capital continues to like burn money. But like uh, much of the conversation around people who had bought GME, bought stock and became very wealthy, turned to not being about the money, but instead being about the message, right? Many, many uh, people I saw were posting screenshots of them turning like $10,000 into like a million, 10 million, like some crazy amounts of numbers. And they would make one of my, one of the, uh, the famous, uh, one of my favorite memes out of that space was like this cartoon drawing of this girlfriend begging her boyfriend to sell so they can be millionaires. But then the, the, the boyfriend is like, no, it's about the message at this point. No, it's, it's about like, it's about uh, sending Melvin Capital into it, into the ground. Why do you guys think that this is turned in such a, in such a, uh, because we also talk about the the 08 financial crisis. People talk about this is like uh, just getting back for the 08 crisis. Why do you guys think that people were so prepared to turn this into a cultural message over a money-making opportunity? Well, I think it's probably a, a lot related to the sort of the trust that's been broken. And, and we saw it, you know, in the financial crisis, a lot of uh, risk-taking by banks. And then those same people who sort of perpetuated this crisis got uh, bailouts and, and uh, help from the government for the most part. Um, and nothing's really changed. Um, and I think now sort of there's this tool where people can actually sort of get together and, and send a message. And I think the pandemic obviously like exacerbates everything because tensions are on, you know, increased and we see a lot of uh, small businesses getting decimated. You see sort of technology companies accruing a ton of you know uh, value over the same period of time so there's this like tale of two cities um and and i think that um you know it's just it's just sort of the litter the, the latest manifestation of of sort of discontent and protest and i think that now uh you know there there's places where you can protest i think bitcoin is is a protest if you don't like what's happening with the fed if you don't like what the government's doing, then don't buy bonds, don't hold dollars, go into Bitcoin or go into Ethereum. Um, and Ethereum is, you know, DeFi is literally re-architecting major financial services. It's obviously pretty nascent and new, but it can't be underestimated um, or stated enough how powerful this is that you can go into uh, DeFi post-collateral and get a loan permissionlessly. Um, and there's no sort of credit check. They're not gonna look at who you are um, and, and look at you know, all of the things that a bank might find and try and block you from getting that loan. Uh, and I think that um, that is huge. And so now sort of technology, I guess, is, is sort of meeting protest, if you will, in the sense that in 2008, um, you know, Occupy Wall Street was sort of the protest against the financial crisis. There wasn't a Bitcoin. Bitcoin, from what we can tell and what we've read, came about through the backdrop and you uh, of the financial crisis. If you look at the Genesis block in 2009, um, it talks about, you know, uh, Chancellor on the Brink, uh, second bailout. It's clearly making a reference to, to the, uh, the crisis. And so now Bitcoin exists. So we can go into things like Bitcoin or Ethereum to protest. Before you, re you really couldn't. 
and your hands were tied and you could pretty much march, you know, but you couldn't actually uh, vote with your capital. You could really only vote with your feet or, or protest and kind of do it in that, in that sort of neat space forum. Now we can just do it really, really uh, easily with our wallets. One thing I want to ask is, is there's, we still haven't finished this story, right? The Wall Street bets, Robin Hood, Melvin Capital story still playing out. Um, yet there are, are, there's more and more talk about how like it, perhaps this, it wasn't, you know, a phone call from Melvin Capital to like the CEO of Robin Hood to tell them to halt trading, but it was instead about um, Robin Hood's uh, perhaps like insolvency and able to pay uh, massive amounts of capital that they weren't expecting to pay. And so perhaps, perhaps we don't know where this story is still unfolding, but it, there were perhaps more legitimate reasons as to why Robin Hood halted, halted the buying yet not the selling of stocks, uh, specifically of the GME stock. But to me, that just brings up an even bigger question is like, why, why do we have, why, why does one, if one hedge fund and their over levered short position against GameStop, why does that having systemic risks in uh, the, uh, the economy? Like what's you guys' takeaway message from there that like, we actually have to start to tinker with like our ability to make and make buys and sells, or else if we don't, we'll collapse the economy. What does that tell you about the state of things that we are in? Well, I think the, the truth is we, we probably don't know um, and we're still kind of learning as, as things unfold here, why that message, uh, which I think was delivered by Robin Hood's uh, CEO on Clubhouse at 10, uh, 10 p.m. Pacific, so 1 a.m. Eastern on a, on a Sunday or Monday morning, why it took days to sort of get that clarification out um, you know, at the worst, it's just a horrible management of a crisis that literally impacts almost all of your users. Um, you know, could you have, uh, I think the trading was halted on Thursday morning of last week. So why not at 8 a.m. say, hey guys, look, um, we've got this issue, we've got to post more collateral and, and these are the steps we're doing and these are why we're doing it. Um, none of that was made clear for days. Um, which is which is definitely a head scratcher um, on one level. I, I think the the other point it, is it also doesn't it, it also doesn't explain like you halting the entire stock right halting only one side, and it doesn't explain why they couldn't just halt margin and make it full reserve because there's no capital issues with the full reserve trade in the settlement. Um, but, and, and I was just going to add the, the, the other issues like, you know, there who, you know, certain groups can lean on certain groups and there there's like indirection. And so maybe we'll, we will never really know what, what the, what the, the true story is, but I think it goes back to the, the inherent problems with centralized system. It only takes one or two phone calls to sort of put pressure on a certain group who then leans on another person that then says, hey, oh, by the way, we need $3 billion worth of collateral, like, you know, uh, surprise um, at 3.30 a.m., you know, on uh, the night before a market open. You're not gonna see and, that. And, and Cameron, just to, just to break that down, so like they probably only clear through one organization, right? So all it takes is a few, like the head, like. I don't believe that Citadel called them directly, right? They're too smart for that. They and others would call the clearing organization and be like, lean on these guys. 
And because they have literally one clearing organization, they 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 have no choice, you know, to, but to listen. So the equivalent would be like a hedge fund calling the blockchain or the miners and being like, don't push these transactions through or stop the blockchain. We can't clear the Bitcoin transactions or Ethereum transactions. Um, that's In what the name of here. risk and consumer protection, of course. Yeah, and um, disorderly markets, which mean, which is code for markets we can't control, or markets that are moving in a way that we that are that are not beneficial to us. But like, that's what happened, right? It's and and that's the thing is like, when you think of the blockchain, that could never happen. That's the beauty of it, um, and that is the vulnerability that this uh, saga has laid bare with respect to centralized finance. A few people make the decisions. It's the same thing with um, centralized media. A very few people control the media. Um, I was having lunch with a friend and he was like, yeah, the media basically reports to three people, Rupert Murdoch, uh, Sulzberger at the Times and Jeff Bezos at the Post. So three people have tremendous influence, right? And finance is no different. Like the banks, even if, if you if you read the chapter in Bitcoin Billionaires where we go around and we're trying to place the shards in different security deposit boxes around the banks, we actually had to like be very careful and low key about our identity um, because as soon as um, someone, and this happened a few times, they're like, oh, Winklevoss twins, they'd Google us, they'd see we're involved in crypto or Bitcoin. And they would, um, even though they're not allowed to do this, they would come up with reasons. They're not allowed to ask you, what are you putting in a security deposit box? They're not saying like, is that a shard to a Bitcoin private key? Um, they're not allowed to ask you like what you're putting in there. Um, but they would just uh, mysteriously come up with a reason why the box was no longer available or why we had to close a box that we had already opened. Because, um, and some of these were regional banks but all of the banks, um, because the banks are too big to fail, they really kind of like report up to obviously the Fed, but a few of the bulge back at banks have all the power and position. And Bitcoin companies um, and crypto companies, when Bitcoin became crypto with Ethereum in 2013, always got our bank accounts shut down. It is still um, a big deal for Gemini, which is a New York trust company that's regulated to win a bank relationship and open a bank account. Every time we do that, it's like a big deal because we don't have that many. Um, and, and historically, um, that's been, you know, what, what is for any startup to open a corporate bank account to receive fiat is pretty trivial, um, but that's like a huge thing if you're in the cannabis industry or are in, are in the crypto industry. And so as soon as you start seeing that and realizing that like a few people say like thumbs up, thumbs down on you. And it's the same thing with loans, right? Like um, I'm privileged enough to get a bank account anytime I want to qualify for a mortgage or whatever. That is not the case for most people in this country. Definitely not in the world. Um, and the stories are horrible, right? About people getting discriminated against for so many reasons, the color of your skin, you know, whatever. Um, and that's the beauty of DeFi is the code doesn't discriminate. The smart contracts don't discriminate. They will take your money. If you send the right amount of ether into Aave or whatever, um, you know, MakerDAO, 
like no there's no person being like you you qualify we're going to an investment committee and and that's what people are waking up to is that like you can actually get access to credit like these basic financial services that make or break whether or not you can create wealth for yourself and your family um generational wealth for yourself or your family um and if you can't get a basic loan to start a business or, or mortgage on your house or even a place to store your your money or access to getting your money into like the financial markets which is for most people is very hard then you don't even stand a chance you know if you want to live a bankless life you need to get a monolith defi visa card monolith is a one-two punch of both an ethereum smart contract wallet and an accompanying visa card that lets you spend the money that you have in your ethereum wallet everywhere where visa is accepted when you swipe your monolith visa card at the grocery store or at a restaurant it actually makes a transaction on the ethereum blockchain that spends some of the money you hold in your monolith wallet it's insanely cool and it's one of the best tools out there for living a bankless but still normal life Monolith also offers on-ramp services for getting your fiat money into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card if you ever need to, and your deposited money goes straight into your non-custodial wallet, so your money is never held by a centralized intermediary. Because Monolith is native Ethereum infrastructure, the money you hold in your Monolith wallet still has the power of DeFi behind it. Swapping assets on Uniswap or earning yield in DeFi is at your fingertips. Go to monolith.xyz and sign up to get your Monolith Visa card today. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to switch swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you, all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. You know what's so interesting about this and what you guys are saying, because we, we absolutely want to get to uh, decentralized finance as being part of the, the solution here, but it is just the... I, I guess the way uh, fintech in particular, platforms like Robinhood have been positioned to us and positioned to like the millennial generation or you know Gen X or even Gen Z, democratizing finance was really how Robinhood has positioned itself, giving everybody the ability to go buy and sell a stock. But we found out last week that that's really a lie. This is not democratizing finance. This is putting lipstick on a pig of an otherwise broken financial system that's not credibly neutral, that's tilted in favor of the big interest and the hedge funds, and that is not democratic, is not for the people, is completely a permission system. Can you talk about that a little bit more about, I guess, maybe the, the lie or the untruth 
of the current apps that we use today and the, the current uh, financial system that, that we use today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, and this is, go ahead, Karen. That's definitely like the, the rub, right? Is that it's one thing if a, if a place says, look, we're, we're just a brokerage house and we're gonna let you trade here. But um, it's really all of the marketing and the diff between reality and what they're actually doing I think is what really is is bothersome. Um, so when they say, "Hey, we're we're a free app, um, trading's free," it's actually not free. And and when whenever you say an app is free, really what that means is that you are the product. The user is the product. And the and the true. I think you guys have some experience with that, right? You guys would know <laughs> certainly. Right, right. Um, the true customer okay. of Robinhood is Citadel, who buys all of the order flow and trade data of the users who trade on Robinhood. It's the same way social media works, is it's free. The users are actually the product. They create all this value, share all this personal data information. That information is then taken and sold to the advertisers who are the true customers of that platform. And that is really the key, one of the key distinctions. It's not about the people. It's about the customer in the case of Robinhood, Citadel, in the case of social media, the advertisers. Um, and I think that is one of the sort of the big realizations. And, and what is also kind of fascinating is Citadel in 2004 wrote a letter to the SEC urging them to ban the practice of, of payment for order flow. Um, basically saying, look, we think this is anti-competitive. We think it's a huge conflict of interest between the broker and the customer. We don't think it does right by the customer, the, the, the user of the platform. Um, and then of course you fast forward today and Citadel buys all the order flow from Robinhood. And, and so, so there's a bit of go into a, a more detail as to why that is disadvantageous for the users. Like why, why is, how are the users actually being leveraged as a product in that scenario? So I, I'll tell you, um, okay. So, um, and Cameron, correct me if you, you disagree, but, um, payment for order flow. So at Robinhood, the users are not trading against each other, right? Their counterparty is actually one counterparty. It's Citadel. Robinhood doesn't charge any fees to you because they, uh, you directly, um, but you, you pay, you get the price that Citadel's provides you. So Citadel pays Robinhood a tremendous amount of money to interact with their customers and they give their customers, uh, Citadel turns around and gives the Robinhood customers a very bad price. So the diff of what um, Citadel pays Robinhood and the way they make up for it and more is they just give you a poor price. When you're a buyer, it's a higher price than it should be. When you're a seller, it's a lower price than it should be. And Robinhood just a month ago settled charges with the SEC um, that they misled customers and then actually customers were not getting um, the national best bid offer, best price which is a regulation that is required for broker dealers to provide for their customers. So they were getting below um, the, the reg NMS standard of what the price should have been mm -hmm. from Citadel. So, so they were allowing how, them, 
they allow the funds to front run retail basically is what you're saying well that's that's the other issue is it not only does citadel give you a crappy price to make a ton of money on the spread of what the price actually is right they they just take that thing they have all of this information and i need to look at this a little bit closer to front run all of the order flow all of the information so whatever's happening over robin hood all of a sudden informs them at what's happening everywhere else in the market and they trade against that so there's tremendous unfair advantages for citadel they're just there's like if the price if the stock is let's say 10 bucks and you're trying to buy um they give it to you for 12 right mm -hmm. so you buy two bucks higher but then they know that you're a buyer in the market they know how many buyers because there's all those people like they know how many buyers how many sellers and they can react to that at another exchange or with another brokerage house. And so um, this is just like highly controversial. And even Citadel itself thought so in 2004, we found a letter that is posted on the web SEC website. I tweeted it this morning. Um, it's, it's like uh, eight pages where they go in depth in how this is controversial, unfair to the customer in 2004. And now, they are they are uh, they engage in this controversial behavior that even they themselves was said it was controversial. That's exactly what they do today because it's so gosh darn profitable. But going going back to um, just sort of going back to the mission statement and and the marketing of, of Robinhood. I mean, even the name Robinhood, right? Uh, conjures up, you know, it harkens back to uh, the, the fairy tale of, you know, stealing from the rich to give the poor. And that's, you know, they're, they're doing the exact opposite um, or, or democratized trading, anything but um, let the people trade, except for it, it when should... GameStop moves too, too much. And, and basically um, that is, I think also like, it, it's not FinTech, it's really, it's Fin marketing. Um, it's centralized finance with a different paint job. Um, there's no new engine. There's no better chassis. It is literally a, a brokerage house that is mastered marketing and really bullshitting. Um, and, and they've been called out. Um, and as Tyler mentioned, there, there's, there's um, an SEC enforcement. Um, and, and we'll see sort of what happens in this latest episode. But it's just over and over breaches of trust. Oh, hey, we got caught red handed. We're really not about the customer. We're about ourselves and building up this, this, uh, you know, uh, business to then sell order flow to Citadel. And, and the list sort of goes on and on. And, and it's really, um, at the end of the day, um, centralized finance with, with better marketing and, and, a, and, a um, you know, better paint job. It should be called the Sheriff of Nottingham. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and this is one of my, my issues with a lot of Silicon Valley companies is, is, or, or like the style of Silicon Valley companies is like heavy marketing, right? Heavy growth and kind of mis misleading marketing. You know, I don't think people are feeling, I believe other brokerage houses did halt some of the trading too, and maybe did the same thing as Robinhood. Um, but like they weren't out there saying commission-free trading. We're all about the little guy. This isn't about the rich getting richer. Um, you know, and, and so the, the double speak and the hypocrisy, um, is a big part of it, but the other issue here 
is it like these companies, Citadel included and Robinhood, have been fined at least multiple times, but the fines are always worth it for them. It's a slap on the wrist. Right. Yeah, it's like a speeding ticket to a billionaire. Um, nobody goes to jail. The fines are like a small rounding error to the profits they make. So any rational economic actor, if they don't, if they're unscrupulous and don't have ethics, will happily take that trade. Right. And and that's what people are also realizing is that like the, the penalties aren't large enough. Nobody's going to jail. 08 crisis was created by the bankers. The bankers uh, always land on their feet because the bankers are the owners of the Fed, right? The Fed's like a hybrid public um, private situation, right? The board of governors is, I believe it's a, you know, government appointee, but the banks are the stakeholders in the Fed. And you guys have talked about this before, the cancel on effect, you know, the money comes to them first. Um, they dump it into asset prices. They quickly move it around. Um, and, and, and then by the time it works its way through the economy to everybody else, the wall street bets crowd, they've had to suffer through and endure higher prices. Um, and so it, it, it perpetuates the inequality. It's, it's inflation for all, um, but purchasing power for a few. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the classic, um, uh, you know, the other recent example is WeWork, right? It's it sort of masqueraded as a technology company, even though shared co-working space has been around since Regis created it, I think in the 70s, the, it was obviously much more modernized. At the end of the day, though, it was just um, co-working space. And, you know, that has all this ethos about community and, and we, the people, or whatnot. And then, of course, you find out the CEO was self-dealing and basically leasing buildings to himself. Um, he trademarked the name We for, you know, and then sold it back to WeWork for six or seven million dollars. Uh, he eventually, like, stepped off that when he was called out right before the IPO. And at the end of the day, it, it was sort of um, a lot of smoke and mirrors. And the person, the people that got hammered on that would be like sort of the employee equity holders who got um, smushed down when the company has to refinance. The VCs will do probably fine um, and, and they'll be okay. But you have all these employees that put, you know, all this time into this company and, and just the diff between what you say and what you do, which is obviously the definition of integrity in a lot of these companies is, is quite large, really large. And I think that's ultimately why people get so frustrated and outraged by it. Um, and, and I think that, um, I guess this is sort of another strength of DeFi and crypto is that there aren't um, mouthpieces. Um, Satoshi, not knowing who Satoshi is, is, is such a strength and we're seeing that day by day. Satoshi will not be going on CNBC. Um, and if Vitalik, you know, decided to retire and go to the Bahamas uh, tomorrow, Ethereum will be just fine and, and DeFi will be just fine. And that is such a, a big strength. And, and even in the early days, we, we, we sort of felt that, but then these things happen and you realize that um, how, how kind of critical that is. There isn't a person or a figurehead that, um, that can become politicized or, or, or sort of deplatformed or censored. It's just not possible. 
And, and that is going to be a theme we're going to see more and more of. And, and it's what makes DeFi so darn exciting. Okay, well, we're going to get into DeFi. Just a quick PSA for Bankless listeners. Uh, guys, don't buy crypto on Robinhood. All right, just don't. If you don't have the ability to withdraw your crypto to an Ethereum address or a Bitcoin address, you don't own it. They can delist trading on your crypto just like they delisted uh, buying or, or, or selling uh, GameStop stock. So don't do that. Go to a real exchange. Guys, let's talk about this in your CNBC interview. I don't think the interviewers knew what to make of this, but you said that the energy from this Wall Street bets thing was going to be pulled into DeFi. You, you called this the beginning of the end of centralized finance. You said things like on Ethereum, that would never happen. I loved like the, the reaction from the, from the host when you said things like that. But let's talk about this. Is this going to be a big moment for DeFi? Does DeFi fix this? And will crypto absorb some of the energy of, of this movement? How does it play out in your minds? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely a GameStop is, I think, a threshold moment. Um, and, and I don't know, like DeFi, um, you know, it's still a fight on sort of the turf of the original, the establishment. Um, and ultimately, rather than sort of running uphill against the establishment, I think a lot of people, that energy pours into DeFi, where, where it sort of doesn't so much as fix it, but it's no longer a problem. Right? There is no establishment to deal with or centralized counterparties and things like that. And I think it is a very, um, it's where it's all going. I mean, DeFi is sort of the, the end game and it's where it sort of stops. Um, and I think a lot of this energy pours in there um, because of this. And there's going to be more and more examples along the way. But I think this is definitely one of those moments where, where people are understanding, um, just like when you see the money printing at some point, you know, you're, a lot of people are going to step back and say, what is these dollars actually worth? And I think people are realizing that, wait, I don't really have full control over the equities in my brokerage account. I, I actually don't really own these things. I mean, I do technically, but it can be the, the, the uh, goalpost can dependencies. be carpet yeah the, the carpet can be pulled and stuff like that so i i do think that this is this has um turned on a lot of light bulbs for people um with respect to DeFi. Mm -hmm. yeah and one thing um so i've gotten dm from people questions um you know how do i move my crypto out of robin hood is there any way to move it without selling it and the answer is no as you pointed out, which is super scary um, because you know it's stuck and you have to convert it to cash. That's actually a taxable event. So if you have it, let's say if you have um, Bitcoin at Gemini and it goes up you know, 10 times or something and you wanna move it to Coinbase, you can do that without having to sell into, into fiat and you, don't, and you don't have to pay taxes. If you had to sell that into cash, that conversion moment, um, you'd have to pay taxes on those gains, then rebuy back Bitcoin, move wire the cash out of Robinhood, and then rebuy Bitcoin on Gemini or Coinbase. So again, it's it's a terrible experience for the user. Um, it's it's literally everything they market is the opposite. I was reading Mark Cuban's tweet the other day um, about how the 
all of the margin fees that Robinhood um, gets for you when you lend a stock goes to them. So there's actually like, they're, they're like a terrible brokerage house and the deal is terrible for people. It's just snazzy marketing and the power of a simple, um, easy to use user interface um, and user experience. But like everything else is like completely against the little guy. Um, so that's just another, another um, there, there's when people start to look um, under the hood, they're just sort of horrified at how, um, how used and abused they have been by, by Robinhood. And even, even down the fact that like they thought they were buying crypto when in reality, when, when, uh, you know, they, they weren't. And when they tried to leave Robinhood, they, you know, it's like they, they were stuck in jail and they had to like break out of jail. And so it's these walled closed gardens, um, you know, the deplatforming of Discord. Deplatforming um, was a big scandalous news story, you know, a couple of weeks ago. And now it's sort of like business as usual. Like when shit goes bad, like, you know, the establishment just turns around and deplatforms you. Um, privacy was like this hot best button issue, right? With Facebook, Cambridge Analytica. Um, and then like all of a sudden deplatforming is just like um, table stakes. Um, when things don't go the way for um, these companies or the establishment or whatever. And it's a really dangerous, slippery soap. Um, I saw a friend talking about um, like the parlor deplatforming, right? Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people, most people are, are for um, the Wall Street bets crowd and are upset that they would get the platform maybe from Discord um but that's exactly what happened to parlor you know and they were for it over there and now they're not for it here and i don't know the details right of what happened but i have heard that like as much of the the violence or some of the, sort of the capitol hill stuff um that i completely disagree with like violence is horrible it should be condemned on any level um but that was organized as much or more on facebook and twitter as it was in parlor um, so there's sort of a double standard, there's sort of hypocrisy and when it suits you over here, that's okay, but you gotta be careful because that can also be used in another situation where it doesn't suit you. Um, and so I guess it's just a slippery slope. And I think people are also wising up to that and sort of the precedent. Um, and of course, like you can't make, you can't make the call to Ethereum, you can't make the call to Bitcoin. So that's the power of it. And this is really waking people up. I want to ask a kind of a general directional question because I, I have uh, just, there's a bunch of different things that we can, that we've talked about and then we can talk about. Um, and one of the, one of the things I want to get to is like, we all talk about, you know, Ethereum fixes this, DeFi fixes this, but you can't actually buy GameStop on Ethereum, right? And actually, interestingly, the Wall Street Bets subreddit is actually relatively anti-crypto. Uh, we, we made a post in there asking if any community members wanted to come chit chat on Bankless and our post got removed because we used the word Ethereum. Um, and, and like I said, like you actually can't buy, you can't buy stocks on Ethereum. That's not what Ethereum does, it's something else. Yet at the same time, we have people like Soldier Boy 
minting NFTs on Ethereum, and we have Elon Musk with Bitcoin in his uh, in his Twitter in Twitter bio. So like things definitely seem to be moving. Yet also seems all things also seem to be just kind of going in a totally different direction. How do you guys, and I guess this is more of a 2021, what do you guys see coming question? How do you guys see these different, you know, dynamics coming where some people are adopting Ethereum, Ethereum, but is it, it also isn't ready to support like the massive amounts of trading activity that one would expect out of like some, some, you know, a hedge fund and Wall Street bets. Like where, where are you guys seeing all these people come into Ethereum, come into DeFi, come into Bitcoin, yet also not really, be like having the tools to uh, mimic their legacy markets experience. Well, I think, um, I think that there's definitely synthetic stocks already on Ethereum in some form or capacity. And I, I would a handful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that that is going to only increase quite a bit. And, and obviously the, the sort of DeFi is in this, this um, sort of, um, position where you're going to get more in centralized finance in terms of like, you know, ability to trade. There's, it's, a, it's an easier user experience today, right? You have to be kind of motivated to get into DeFi and access these newer projects and things like that. But that will change dramatically. The same way the internet, <clears throat> connecting the internet in the 90s was a much different prospect and experience than it is today. So the on-ramps are going to become easier, better UIs, and eventually be on par, if not better. So it's, it's, it's a very sort of new technology and space that I think that is part of it. So it's not going to happen overnight. And there's still going to be people who focus on ease of use and say, you know, I'm willing to deal with that um, and take the risks of a centralized platform. And I can just live with the fact you're going to see many, many people that will be in that camp, at least today. But eventually it'll all move for the same reason, you know, a lot of people were totally fine with AOL being their internet experience for, for many, many years. And, and quite frankly, some people still use AOL email. Um, but eventually it became really clear that the open internet, at least at that time period, was 10x better and that Google offered a much better search engine and that Gmail is a much better mail client. Um, and, and so forth. And so it, it, it won't happen overnight, but it's going to happen quicker than people probably think. Um, and then look, some people, um, I think in the wall street bets crowd are, are really focused on sticking it to the establishment on their turf. Um, the establishment isn't in, it isn't in DeFi, so you can't really do that. Um, though potentially a synthetic eventually is going to be linked to the underlying in, in CFI. So, so there may be some interesting dynamics there, but if your goal is to stick it to the man um, in, in CFI, then that's going to be where you're going to play. But I think that the majority of people really want better tools. They want permissionless finance um, ultimately, and that's the direction they want to go in, right? You can, you can sort of protests and keep like marching on CFI, or you can just go build the next frontier um, and say, look, we're just going to reimagine this whole space. And I think that's where ultimately the motivation of, of most people are. Um, they're just going to say, this is just better. We're not going to worry about this old dinosaur. We're not going to try and re uh, renovate AOL. We're just, we're just going to go over here and, and build on this, this new frontier. So I think that's where it goes. Um, 
that's that's the end game. But I think in the in the near term, there's going to be a lot of turf wars, and and we're seeing that with silver right now. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's some people who say, look, like not so fast, like let's finish the GameStop protest, so to speak. Um, and so there's this division in the community on, on what the right time is and where the focal point is. What, what fascinates me about the silver squeeze or the potential is, is you know, it's unclear who's on like the, the short side of silver and who the, the losers are there. Um, I think likely there's precious metal deaths at banks that are probably short silver. Um, and, and there's other people that we probably don't know about. And I'm sure there's people, hedge funds that are long silver and would benefit on a silver squeeze. But all of that said, it's unclear necessarily. And it probably, there will never be like a clear winner or loser. But what's fascinating is that there's likely, there's a hypothesis that there's much more paper claims to silver than actual underlying physical silver. And nobody really knows who has what or what claims are, you know, to silver. And it's incredibly opaque. And, um, and so even if uh, a small percentage of people start buying physical silver and or paper and they force delivery where people have to actually come up with the physical silver, it could be really, really dramatic. And we're going to learn just how real the market is. Um, and, and what's kind of mind blowing. So I think if there is a squeeze, then the next uh, step will be to turn to the gold market and say, how real is this? You know, how much paper versus physical underlying is there? And, and Cameron, isn't it um, like one of the important things to explain is that a lot of people might buy like a silver futures or a gold futures and they don't actually take delivery in the underlying asset they take delivery in cash or they keep rolling it so um if if a bunch of people say hey i'm actually gonna buy this paper silver paper and i'm gonna take delivery of the silver then people have to find the silver and actually deliver it and deliver the asset and cough it up and there could be they, there could, they could fall short of it. If there's more paper than there is actually silver in the world or gold in the world, then people will be sitting there waiting for the delivery and it won't happen. Right. And, and so testing the hypothesis of like how much paper is out there versus the physical underlying, I think is fascinating. And if it does happen there, I think the next stop is gold. And then um, that gets has huge ramifications because any country that is sort of de-dollarized and heavy on gold or central banks that have big gold holdings, um, they could be in trouble, right? If, if it's proven that there's way more paper and nobody really knows. And so then it ultimately goes to, to, to crypto because blockchains actually fix this. Bitcoin right. fixes this, Ethereum fixes this. This is just a story of insolvency left and right. It's like, does, does Melvin Capital, 
you know, are, are they able to come up with enough GME shares to cover their shorts? Like, no, because there's 140% short interest. You know, is there enough silver in the world to cover all of these paper contracts for silver? Perhaps not. Um, what I'm seeing left and right is like, there are so, there's so much financial engineering and so many contracts that need to be fulfilled on top of the underlying that there's there's a quote unquote run on the bank or instead it's a quote unquote run on GME or a run on silver or a run on gold. It's, it, the, the patterns here are fascinating to me. Right, and, and everyone looks at crypto and says, that's not real money. That's not real. <laughs> like when the, the centralized system is completely mythology and illusion, nobody actually knows. And we might actually find out like, yeah, do the do the assets and the liabilities match up with um, with silver or gold or GME? We know that like GME is yeah. The, the fact that you can short more than there are shares uh, is such a farce. Um, but that's like the real financial respectable world in crypto. Like we know the float of Bitcoin. You know, like there's no more, no less, and everyone can point to the blockchain, or everyone can point to the Ethereum blockchain, and see what ether is there. And like when you send an ether, it actually settles on the atomistic level. Like I actually get it. There's never a question in my mind. That's that's the power that people are uh, are 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 understanding right now. And and with with open finance, of course, all of this is out in the open. It's completely transparent to everybody. What 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 strikes me about this whole thing and what what you're saying is basically so. If if folks weren't totally following what Cameron and, and Tyler were talking about, is this Wall Street bets crowd is essentially going to the the next asset that it thinks is um, underpriced or that there might be some you know hedge fund shenanigans going on and taking that out and happens to be silver. Clothes. Yeah, this is a very healthy market forces thing. And you'd think that the capitalists at CNBC would be all for market forces correcting the market and bringing more integrity to these markets because that's what the Wall Street bets crowd is, is trying to figure out. And look, they'll be successful if they find there's some shenanigans going on. They might move from silver to gold and then eventually find their way to crypto. So here's the interesting thing to me is if I am in traditional finance, I'm part of the establishment, I am a hedge fund. I might be shaking in my boots. Like I might be like reevaluating all of my positions and I might be logging on to Wall Street bets and trying to figure out what this Reddit crowd is going to come pounce on next because I could be the recipient uh, of some of that energy. And if I've got some like bad positions outstanding, if I have some skeletons in the closet, I'm shaking in my boots right now because I don't know if they're coming after me next, which is actually pretty healthy I think this is restoring some sanity to the markets quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a penetration test. They're like stress testing the system and, and like they're the, like the ultimate auditor. Um, and I think that the, 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 um, the movement into Dogecoin is really fascinating because I, I see it more as a, as a protest. It's like as much of a protest as like, um, Satoshi creating Bitcoin in a way in the in the backdrop in the wake of the 2008 uh, crisis. It's like we're going to build this other system, and um, going to Doge is like you know what? Like we're tired of people telling us what money is. We're tired of the the modern money monopoly and you being like you can trade here, or you must use this currency, and the people are saying we determine what the currency is. If we think it's cigarettes or stones or shells or Dogecoin, 
well then it is you know and it's it's kind of goes to the the austrian chicago school of thought of like money being emergent and what what uh you know free market forces not coercive like fiat currency and um emerging based on what the people all agree and say it is um and and, and it's sort of that. like a reaction to like you tell us you can't trade you tell us we have to do this no no no. like we make the, we make our own rules and there's like and, and you see it everywhere it's sort of like people are realizing like wait I don't have to sit in New York, LA, or San Francisco until I retire to move to somewhere else. I can actually work remote. I have autonomy. I have sovereignty. Um, you know, like we're learning so much about like our freedoms and our independence, you know, whether it's like working remote or like what money might be. And people are just reacting. And I think it's all related. Yep. No, that's, that's, those are all. Uh, I, I, I agree with all those points. And um, I think that, um, you know, fiat money has has a tremendous uh, um, sort of tailwind uh, from the legal protections and requirements and obligations to pay your taxes in US dollars as a merchant to accept US dollars. Um, crypto uh, has none of that. And so it's, it's truly emergent. There's no uh, government authority saying you must or you need to use this. In fact, a lot of them are saying the exact opposite, like be careful, watch out, don't do this. It's scary. And uh, it's truly emergent and organic money in that respect. And I think that that is, is really fascinating. And, and money is ultimately in the eye of the beholder. Um, and, and so if people determine that Dogecoin is, is money, I guess it's money, you know, if they believe it, if enough people believe it and are willing to accept it and use it, then it's, then it's money. And, and that's one of the hardest things I think people have with, you know, crypto, Bitcoin, and ether is like understanding what, what, where's the value? How, how do you value this thing or intrinsic value? That's like another great sort of classic traditional finance uh, buzzword to, to try and like value something or, or discredit you know, there, but there's no there's no intrinsic value in in Bitcoin or Ethereum, really. There's no cash flow. Um, there's no cash flow, um, and 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 I think all of that is sort of being dispelled quickly, um, in short order. But it is it is really interesting. And 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 the Wall Street bets, um, those message boards, I think, grew by six million people in the past week alone. It's pretty pretty staggering. And I guarantee you, uh, some of those people are, are definitely hedge fund suits and people who are going in there and saying, okay, what, what is going on here? And, and, and incorporating it into the risk models and say, hey, wait a second, um, we, we better not you know, overshort uh, a stock because you know, we, we could uh, you know, uh, get on these guys' radars. Um, I mean, it's one thing to, to sort of hedge and, and you know, have a point of view. It's another to sort of go 50% over the float. Um, and, and that's, that's the predatory, you know, element that, that Melvin engaged in that, that everybody got so, so worked up about. Guys, David has called this event, the starting pistol for what could be next with decentralized finance. The people are certainly waking up. Um, I don't think your message is, is populist. I think the Cantillon effect, the money printing, I think that the banning GameStop from Robin 
from Robin Hood, that fuels populism. I think the people want these outlets and they shouldn't be deplatformed from their social media channels or from their financial system. Guys, I don't think this is the first time that we're going to have you uh, on in 2021 because hopefully you'll come back because there's just so much going on. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you. You want to end with this. I know Gemini is rolling out some cool things. David and I are on the waiting list for a new Gemini credit card. Can you talk about what you have in the works with 2021 and when David and I can uh, can look forward to getting that credit card in our wallets? Sure, yeah. yeah. We're really excited about that. Um, and I think that uh, it, it really struck a chord. I mean, we can sort of tell from, from kind of the activity on Twitter or the DMs I'm getting or even just text messages from friends, um, people seem to be really excited about this um, idea of being able to uh, earn crypto when when you spend your your US dollars and really, it's almost like a transfer, right? And, and, yeah. and investing <laughs> while you spend. Um, and it's, it's a behavior that we all have, right? We're all used to swiping our cards or Apple paying into, or, or Google pay or what have you. So there's like no change of behavior and it's a really easy way to start stacking sats um, and and um, and and or whatever crypto, whether it's Ethereum or, or uh, that Gemini supports. So it was really interesting, and we think this is this this could be very much like a mainstream moment, a, a way to onboard a lot more people um, and kind of demystify and and sort of. I think one of the biggest questions we so. A huge misconception is people don't understand that you can buy a fraction of these coins. That's still people don't understand. It's not that's like, how early we are. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's like Berkshire Hathaway. When people see the Class A, they're like, I can't buy four hundred thousand dollars worth of one share at Berkshire. And I think a, a lot of people still literally uh, see thirty thousand Bitcoin and say, I'll never own a Bitcoin. I guess I'm going to go elsewhere or Ethereum at you know fourteen hundred dollars. I can't afford that. And the truth is, as we know, you can buy a fraction, right? So it allows people to sort of get in uh, with little bites. Um, and I think that that's really helpful. And then the other question people have is like, well, when do I buy? Is it going to retrace? Is it going up, down, whatever? Of course, you know, um, it's, it's impossible to time these things, even if you're professional and this is all you do all day long. So it takes away that question and it just becomes like a, a reoccurring buy order, really. And I think those two things are really powerful and they're captured with the credit card moment. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, we, we're looking forward to launching it um, soon. Well, I think my favorite feature about this is that it is uh, selling dollars for, I mean, for me, for buying ether, right? Whenever I swipe that, whenever I swipe that credit card, dollars are, I'm selling dollars and I'm and buying ether. So I'm demonetizing the dollar and I'm monetizing the ether by putting the ether onto my personal balance sheet. I think that's a great feature. I'm looking forward to, to swiping that Gemini credit card. Yeah. And, and the, the cool thing about that is that it's a three percent, up to 3% back, right? So you could get ether. Um, so you go to Best Buy, you get a flat screen TV or something, but I think 3% of ether long-term could easily be worth more than the TV itself in fiat. So you're getting rid of your, tra your cash is trash. You're investing in your future, your financial, uh, you know, independence. Um, and, and that like, you know, little bit of ether 
actually has a chance to appreciate to being worth more than the purchase itself, as opposed to getting airline miles, which just encourage you to, well, hard to travel right now, but encourage you to spend, go somewhere and spend more or these gimmicky- super inflationary. They're super inflationary. I mean, in, in, or these gimmicky points where like, it's so black box, like what's the market cap? They're centrally controlled. Amex can just print more. It's the same issue with like the silver market. You know, we don't really know how much there's there are. So these these things, um, you know, it, it's it's like it's like GameStop. You can short more than actually exists. Or how many points are there? What are they worth? What's the exchange rate? It's a total joke, and it's not um, you know super productive for the consumer. But actually, turning transforming spending into investing in your future is so much more constructive. Absolutely. Well, guys, if, if you've gotten one thing out of this, it's definitely to stay tuned to what's coming with this GameStop thing. This is definitely the, the starting pistol. And also, if you are using a fintech type of uh, platform, beware of deplatforming. Get going with some crypto native exchanges and crypto native tools. Move your funds. Don't buy crypto in, um, in, in uh, places like Robinhood where you don't actually own it. Um, guys, thanks so much for joining us on Bankless and, and sharing this story. We are looking forward to seeing how 2021 develops. Thanks so much Th- for having us. Thanks for having us, guys. Really appreciate the conversation. Cheers. Absolutely. Guys, risks and disclaimers. Of course, crypto is risky. So is DeFi. The assets we talked about are risky. You could lose what you put in. So is traditional finance, though. It has some censorship risks as well that crypto doesn't have. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on Bankless.